Good evening, everyone. My Bible is going to be open to Mark chapter 5. I invite you to turn there to Mark chapter 5. It is so good to be back with you all. It's uh, good to see so many familiar faces. It's good to see the new faces, too. Um, I had such a good experience with you guys. I found out it was three years ago that I was here. I thought it was four. Uh, time just flies uh, by. Um, look, you guys didn't know me then. So you know, if it didn't go well back then, you know, uh, that was my fault, right? You, you're now having me back a second time. So if it doesn't go, go good this week, you have nobody to blame but yourselves. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate you asking me back. It's, uh, it's always an honor. Um, I know there's a, there's a lot of good preachers out there um, that you could ask. And, um, it's an honor to be asked. And I just hope that I'll be an encouragement to you these uh, next few days as you have been to me. Mark chapter 5. Um, I'd like to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to go down through verse 20. Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20. As they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine, so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him, and he did not let him. But he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis, what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. You know, before um, Jesus heals this demon-possessed man, the, the condition of this man is just is pure misery. I don't think I'd want my worst enemy to go through what this demon-possessed man went through. But I will tell you something, and um, initially this is going to surprise you, but, but I just ask that you bear with me. Um, I've actually experienced this. I've seen this happen to people. I've seen it happen at Walmart. I've seen it happen uh, on Auburn's campus. I've experienced this on my job. I've seen this happen um, amongst my neighbors. 
I've experienced it in my marriage. And I have seen this very thing happen in churches. And you may find this hard to believe, but you have seen this thing happen too. You've seen it all the time. See, there's more going on behind the scenes to this story in Mark chapter 5 than you're going to get from just a simple, casual reading. This is one of those stories that you really have to zoom in on to see its practicality. But zoom in on it we must because in this story, what God is doing is he's going to lift the curtain and he's going to give us backstage passes on what is really going on behind the scenes as it concerns our world. See, when I told you that I have seen this kind of thing happen before that happens here in Mark chapter 5, I don't mean that I have seen a man possessed with like literal demons and those demons uh, being cast out. But I have seen what happens when sin gets a hold of a person. And you have too. Because when you consider sin and you rip off that facade that makes sin look so pleasurable and you graphically show what sin actually is and what sin actually does, this is it right here, right here in the story. This is what sin looks like underneath the hood. It looks like what this man is going through. It puts us in bondage. It chains us. We're alive, technically, but we're not really living. Because like this man who verse 2 tells us is living in a tomb, sin turns us into the walking dead, in which I may be technically alive, but I might as well be dead. I mean, this is a guy who is completely out of control. Uh, back in verse 3, it says, No one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him. And the shackles broken in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. This is a guy that's out of control. And you know why? Because that's what sin does to people. Sin robs us of our senses. Can you relate to this? Haven't you, at some point in your life, been held captive by some sin, and so you find yourself living in your own warped reality, blissfully ignorant of what that sin is doing to you? Have you ever had some passion that you just couldn't rein in and it causes your imaginations and your thoughts to just completely run away from you so that you're living in, in your own little virtual reality? Verse 4 tells us that nobody was able to get this guy under control. Have you ever tried to rein in somebody else who's caught up in some kind of sin who's out of control? It is practically impossible. Because sin distorts our reality. It makes us disoriented. It makes us senile. We, we look like we belong in a mental war because the things that, that we do when we allow sin to take us captive, it just it looks so impractical. It, it, it looks ridiculous and perplexing. It looks senseless. That's what sin does. I mean, consider King David back in uh, first, uh, Second Samuel chapter uh, 11 when he, when he committed adultery. And he had Bathsheba's husband killed to try to cover it up. Does that look like the same King David that we're used to reading about before those events happen? The David that we know from his early life? I mean, think about all the wonderful things that David had accomplished up until that point in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And then you get to 2 Samuel 11. Does that look like a guy that's living in reality? No. What David looks like in 2 Samuel 11 is he looks like a crazy man. 
Because that's what sin does. Now that begs the question, um, which particular sin does this? You know the answer, don't you? Every single one of them. Um, for example, only a person who is completely taken captive by the sin of selfishness could ever talk themselves into believing that, that God just wants me to be happy. But you've heard people say that, haven't you? Maybe you've said that at some point in your life. But you know, even a superficial reading of the Bible shows us just how wrong that is. I mean, God just wants you to be happy. Even at the expense of, of other people, other people that you're going to have to run over to achieve that, no matter the damage that you cause to others, it's your personal happiness that God is really concerned with. You see how crazy that sounds? That's what the sin of selfishness does. It's disorienting. A person enslaved by selfishness is not living in reality. And neither is someone who is consumed with pride. Um, pride is an exaggerated self-evaluation of ourselves that, that seeks acceptance from others based on some pretense, right? And so our, what our pride does is it just creates this illusion, but it's not reality. And how about fear? I was all about watching that scary movie a couple nights ago until my refrigerator started making this noise. <laughs> And it had made that noise a thousand times before, but now that I'm watching this horror movie and I'm scared, it makes this noise. Now I've got my dog outside guarding the door, I'm looking left and right, making sure the boogeyman hasn't snuck in, into my house. It's amazing how even something like fear can just completely change your reality. And we could go on and on, right? I mean, bitterness renders us incapable of making rational, reasonable conclusions about a matter. The love of money sets up all kinds of false senses of security within us. Uh, lust is mistaken for love. Well, we, we could go through every single sin and see the same pattern of self-distortion. Because a person who is consumed by sin looks like a mental case. But he's not. It's a sin issue. And, and to reduce it to mental illness, if I can be quite frank, it is actually an insult to those who have true mental illness. And if we allow ourselves to become too distracted by the symptoms rather than the root cause, we're going to find ourselves dismissing people as hopeless cases rather than helping them to bear the necessary burden in order to get them right with Jesus, as this man got right with Jesus right here. Um, back in verse 5 of chapter 5, um, it tells us that constantly night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. He, he, he's hurting himself. And nobody could stop him. Self-harm, that, that is a big part of sin. And this man in this story is living that nightmare. He's screaming day and night. Sin will keep you up at night, won't it? Because it brings guilt. You can't sleep. You can't rest. Sin's constant presence. It just robs us of some of the most basic of human needs. Sin isolates you. I mean, this is a guy that's living in the tombs. He's living in the mountains all by himself because nobody can be around him, and he can't be around anybody else. Uh, sometimes back in Auburn, we'll, we'll have brethren who will start to isolate themselves um, from the rest of the Christians, and, and you start to wonder why, and then as you start digging a little bit deeper, you, you realize, oh, you know, they, they've gotten themselves caught up in, in something. Pornography. 
some illicit relationship, an illicit substance, and it drives them into isolation. Sin does that, just like it does, did to this man here in Mark chapter 5. Do you see what I mean when I say that we've all experienced this before? What, what we're reading in this chapter is really nothing new. I've been this, brethren, and so have some of you. And the point of this graphical description of this man's condition in Mark 5 is that this is not a person that we should want to be. Because it looks like nobody can help this man. But that was only because he hadn't met Jesus. Because when he does, things that once looked impossible are going to radically change. Pigs are going to fly. Um, that's the perspective of the man. Um, I, I want to come back to what happens when he's healed uh, in, in, a, in a moment. I actually want to skip over that part. I think it would be helpful for us to first consider the reaction of the people after he is healed. Um, so I want you to imagine this. Imagine you're one of the townspeople, and you've heard all this racket, all this commotion with the pigs, and, and you come out to see what's going on, and you see this guy who everybody in town knew, but now he's got his clothes on, and he's sitting down, he's in his right mind, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus of Nazareth. But as you notice this, you didn't notice these 2,000 head of pig floating dead in the sea. And others in town are starting to fill you in on what's happened and what's transpired. And just as you realize the wonderful thing that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, has done in the city for this man, you then turn to Jesus of Nazareth and you say, we're going to need you to move on from here. Can you imagine that? That was their response in verse 17. It says they began to implore him to leave their region. And so you know what Jesus did? He obliged him. And this happens every day too. And you've seen this, haven't you? You've seen what happens when God does something amazing. You've seen what happens when Jesus touches some person in some magnificent way, and that person's life has changed for the better. But what Jesus did for that one person has now rocked my world, and my reaction is, I don't want that. That, that affects me too much. It's too much change. See, now we're starting to see another perspective on sin, aren't we? But this time it's with the onlookers. And this sin is a little bit more subtle than the demon-possessed man, isn't it? I mean, on the surface, the sin that we see with the town people is not quite as grotesque as what we see with the demon-possessed man. This is a, a sin that's a polite sort of sin, maybe a culturally acceptable sin. You know, these are the kind of sins that you can commit and you can still keep your job. These are the kind of sins you can commit and still keep your livelihood. You can still keep your friends. But you know, the truth about these townspeople is that they are so selfish. I mean, Jesus has really done this, this amazing thing for this man. He's been so gracious to a suffering man that nobody else could help. But as these selfish people are just looking around town and they're seeing just the amazing thing that has unfolded, they are completely distracted by what Jesus did, how that has cost them personally. I mean, shouldn't somebody be happy for this man? I mean, I mean, shouldn't somebody have celebrated, thrown a party for this guy, wept tears of joy for him that now he's in this situation? Why no town celebration? 
Why no happiness for him? And the unfortunate reason is that they cared more about the pigs than they did the man. These people would have rather kept the demons than the man. They were content to think this man is crazy and then separate themselves from him so that in their minds what they could do is they could excuse themselves from any responsibility concerning him. And again, if we're quick to dismiss people who are enslaved in sin because they have problems and, and just bearing their burdens is going to cost me too much personally, we'll find ourselves doing the same. But they, they were selfish. But they were also covetous. They're covetous. Um, this, is, this was an economic issue for them, was it not? I mean, what Jesus did for this one man, it cost that town something. And what I suspect is they knew that if Jesus stuck around town and he did more good things for people, that it might actually cost them more things. I mean, I'm sure they liked the idea of having someone like Jesus around doing good things for people, but they didn't want what it would cost them personally for him to do great things among them. Because you, knew, you know what it meant for Jesus to be among them perpetually? It meant they were going to have to change. And they didn't want to change. They wanted everything to be as it was. But we cannot have the man without the plan. Jesus not, did not come here to do great things for us because we were great people. He came here so that we could change. He didn't even just come here just simply so that, that we could be forgiven of our sins. He didn't die in that cruel death on the cross just so we could be forgiven. That's just the beginning. He came here and died for us so that we could have our sins forgiven and so that we could be changed. What we're doing here is not about accumulating more treasures on earth. It's about exchanging all these treasures we've accumulated here on earth for treasures in heaven. They were too covetous. They were too selfish. And I'll tell you a third thing about them is that they were faithless. Because for some reason they couldn't see the implications of what Jesus had done for, for this man. Because if Jesus could do this great thing for this man in what seemed like an impossible situation, imagine what he could have done for every single one of those townsfolk in their situations. So what we see here in these townspeople is we see people who are shallow, we see people that are going through life unthinking, unobservant, like robots who are oblivious to what's really happening. And the truth is, brethren, we, we see this every day, too. And I'll admit, I, I've been the first guy. I've been this first guy at points in my life. But I've been these people, too. And so have some of you. And it almost begs the question, um, which two are of the two are, are the greater bondage? Is it the naked, screaming, demon-possessed man, or is it the people who are possessed with selfishness, covetousness, and faithlessness? Which bondage do you think is worse? I don't know if you can rank them. It's probably whichever one we happen to be thinking about the most at the moment. Uh, but they're both pretty bad, aren't they? But then Jesus comes in on the boat. And the wonderful thing is he is able to do for this man what nobody else could Again, in verse 10, it says that he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. So, so they're asking permission, right? And then in verse 13, it says Jesus gave them permission. 
And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and a herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. So here's a question that I think is important to consider for this story. Who drowned the pigs? Was it Jesus or was it the demons? And the answer is both. Because both had a hand in it. They asked, Jesus gave permission, and the herd's reaction to the demon possession was just run over the cliff. But this is a really important point to consider, because after they lose their pigs, the townspeople are going to want to know who's responsible for this. I mean, because what are the herdsmen going to do tomorrow? They're out of a job. I mean, there's some explaining to do. This 2,000 head belonged to somebody. It had some monetary value associated with it, did it not? And so the owner took a hit. They didn't have insurance in those days like we do. If they're gone, they're gone. And, and the economy of this land has likely been impacted. So they're going to want to know who's responsible for this. And, and brethren, this is this very same issue that gives people so much trouble even in our day. I mean, if, if our economy is bad, is it because of God or is it because of Satan? If inflation is you know, skyrocketing like it's done today, is it, is it God or is it Satan's doing? If a pandemic strikes and rocks our world, who has a hand in it? I don't know the answers to those questions any more than you do. But, I mean, we still wonder about things like this. All I know from this story is that when it came to these pigs flying off the cliff, the Lord had a hand in it, and Satan had a hand in it. And this can be a really tough pill for some to swallow. Um, but you know what helps? Well, one thing that will help is what I'm preaching on Friday. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. Um, but from this story, you know what helps me? It's thinking about just how different God's strategy was in this story versus Satan's strategy. And what I mean is this. Jesus obviously cares about this man, does he not? I mean, he wants to make him better. But that legion of demons would have gladly given Jesus this one man if it meant he might allow him to possess the rest of these townspeople. Satan doesn't care if one person responds to Jesus as long as he can sink his filthy towns in the rest of the town. But what I love about this story is that it shows us just how wiser Jesus is than Satan. See, the reason that I wanted to look at the reaction of the townspeople before we looked at the miracle is because of this. Jesus already knew that Satan had these people. That's why when everything occurred with this man being healed and with these pigs flying off the cliff, they asked Jesus to leave. <coughs> Sending the legion of demons into the pigs and then flying off the cliff, this is not what caused these people to become selfish and covetous and unmerciful. Brethren, they were already that way. You know what the actions of the pigs flying off the cliff did? It exposed these things. That's what happened. It exposed their true nature because what Jesus ended up doing by giving them permission is he, he took that by taking away something from them. He showed that they cared more about the pigs than they did the man. So you see the different strategies? 
I mean, Jesus knows what he's doing, even if we can't always see it. And, Brenner, if we can always know God's strategies, what they were when a disaster occurs, I mean, what would even be the point of faith? And I guess my question bringing all, all this up is, is, doesn't God still do this today? I mean, sometimes God allows things to be taken away from us in order to get us to see. Sometimes he allows us some hurt so that maybe we'll wake up. Because the same power and the same compassion that he showed this one man was the same power and the same compassion that he was willing to show these townspeople too. And so maybe just the presence of this man who used to be demon-possessed, but now he's healed, maybe just the presence of him going around their town and telling everyone what Jesus did for him, maybe that would be enough to shake them out of their complacency and out of their selfishness. Maybe somebody among those town people seeing this would say, wow, man, that was really something that he did for this man. Imagine what he can do for me. But then there's the perspective of the demons. And I don't want to spend too much um, time on this, but you can see that the demons in this story, they are outsmarted. They're no match for Jesus, and they know it. I mean, in verse 7, you can tell they're scared to death of him. In verse 7, they ask, what business do we have with each other, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. And um, in Matthew's um, account of the same story, um, they actually ask, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? And so they know Jesus. These demons know exactly how much authority he has, that he has all authority. God had already said in Genesis 3 that the seed of woman would destroy the seed of Satan, and I think this is just a, one of those precursors to that great event. They, they know what's coming. But Satan doesn't know as much as he thinks he does. And we need to remember this when he's tempting us. Because when he tempts us, he acts like he has all the answers, doesn't he? And he doesn't. And his time is coming. And when that time does come, we do not want to find ourselves on the losing team. Um, but finally, um, go back to chapter 5, verse 18. Um, I, I want us to consider the perspective of a healed man. Here's an interesting little tidbit about this story. I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but um, there, there were three people in this story who asked Jesus for something. Um, the legion of demons asked Jesus to be able to enter into pigs. Uh, the people asked Jesus uh, to get out of Dodge. And the third person who asked Jesus a question was the man he healed. And it's here in verse 18. It says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And notice this, and he did not let him. Now think about that irony. Everyone got what they asked Jesus for, except for this man. And instead of giving him what he wanted, Jesus gives him a job. In verse 19, he tells him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Now, based on what we already know about these townspeople, um, if you were in this guy's sandals, does that sound like a job that you want? <laughs> Not me. I don't think I would want to do this. I mean, these people didn't care about him. They didn't love him. 
They were selfish and they were consumed with their own material pursuits. But the interesting thing here is that Jesus did make rep recompense for what they lost, didn't he? I mean, he might have taken away their pig, but he hired them a preacher. That's pretty fair to do. And every person that this newly healed man was going to talk to, every single one of those people were going to remember who he used to be and where he came from. And he's going to be right there in their face telling them the great things that Jesus did for him and what he can therefore do for them. And I think there's great power in that. You know, sometimes um, when we're talking to people about the gospel, I think sometimes we can end up making the mistake of um, almost uh, talking down to some people without really realizing that, that we're doing so. And what I mean by that is, is we'll, we'll, we'll tell them like all the great things that Jesus has done for us personally, how he's changed me, and, and then we'll say they need what we have. And, you know, if we're not careful... That can come across as a little bit haughty. I've had to catch myself on that a few times. Um, it almost seems like you're talking down to people sometimes. At least that's how I feel about myself when I've done this. Um, not this man. Everybody knew this man. Everybody knew where he came from. And so everyone he talked to, he was not talking down to them. He was talking up to them. He isn't better than anybody in this town. And given where he came from, can you see how that might affect the message? Jesus hired that town a preacher. And it wasn't just for what they needed. But this is important. He hired him a preacher also because that's what that man needed the most. The thing that this healed man did not need the most at the time he was healed was to get in that boat and go with Jesus. That, that's not what he needed the most. What he needed the most after he was healed is he needed purpose. This is very important if you want to have success in evangelism. That the bigger the change a person makes, the greater their conversion is, the greater their sense of purpose needs to be. That's what this man really needed. It wasn't time for him to get in the boat with Jesus. What this man needed was he needed one big, fat, selfless purpose. And that purpose was you go and you talk to people who do not care about you. Because that was going to be good for him. And in giving this man the purpose that he needed, he was also able to give these self-centered people in that town what they needed the most. And what they needed most, and brethren, what people out there need the most from us that have been healed is they need patient prodding. They need to be provoked in such a way that only people who really feel the sense of healing that men like this underwent can really give them. And brethren, we're never going to touch people with the gospel. We're never going to touch people's lives with the gospel. <coughs> if we're too distracted by how many heads we have. 
The truth is, our, our purpose here on this earth, it's not a healthy economy. It's not healthy inflation. It's not a great job. It's not a big, beautiful home. It's, it's not about our money. That Those pigs, in whatever form they may come, they need to fly off the cliff and back into the abyss where they came from. This that we're doing right here, that we're going to be doing the rest of this week, and on every Sunday and Wednesday that we assemble together, every devotional that we gather together to have fellowship with, every time that we gather at some restaurant or some place to have a Bible study, every time we pray in public, every time we get this message right here out there, that's what this life is really about. That's our purpose. Not all that other stuff that's going to burn away. Not all that other stuff that we can't take with us when we're buried in our, in our own tomb. This is foremost about God, what we're doing here. And secondly, it's about people. And we need to care about people because God cares about people. And what this text teaches us, brethren, is that there is a warfare that is going on behind the scenes, and it's about souls. And Satan is out there, and he's trying to win souls, and God is trying to win souls, and we need to decide on whose team we're going to be on. As for me, I decided 21 years ago I'm going to be on the winning team. I'm going to be on Jesus' side. I'm in this for him. And of the infinite reasons that I can give why I'm in this for Jesus, from this story's perspective, he is the only one in this story who cared both about the man and these terrible, terrible people. And he was the only one in this story who gave the man in the story and the townspeople what they really needed, not Satan. We could list a million reasons more. What did this man say to his, to his people? I don't know. We're not told. It's kind of like, you know, we're really love to have heard Philip's sermon to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. It just tells us that he preached Jesus to him. We don't know what this man told these townspeople in this story. Um, but if you'll allow me a little poetic liberty, can I tell you what I imagine he probably said to him? I imagine that he would have said something like, I was in chains. I was a walking dead man. Satan was torturing me and nobody was there to help me. But then Jesus came and he cared about me and he took my broken life and he put it all back together again and now I love him and I wanted to go and I wanted to be with him wherever he was going to be. Wherever he went, I wanted to be there. But he told me that for now, I needed to stay. And to tell you and everyone else, not only what he has done for me, but what he's willing to do for you. That's why I imagine he would have said, and it would have been a powerful message. And as it stands now, Jesus is in heaven, waiting for all those who have not yet come to him. And if you find yourself here tonight and... Um, Maybe there's one person in this story you can relate to more than the other. Maybe you can relate to the demon-possessed man. I've been him, but I've been these townspeople too. Maybe you can relate to them. But whatever your condition is here tonight, the same Jesus that healed this man and was willing to heal these townspeople, he's available to heal you tonight. And so we're going to stand and we're going to sing an invitation song. And if we can help you in any way get closer to Jesus, whether that could be really initial obedience to the gospel or maybe there's some sin that's been plaguing you, that, that you're just finally ready to let go, but you, you need the prayers and encouragement and help of the saints here. Um, our invitation is just come forward and make that done. Tell us how we can help you while we stand and while we sing this invitation song.